Each year, at the medical school where I teach, I direct a one-hour class with the students who are about to enter their third year of medical school. We call the class the Vulnerable Medical Student, and the hour consists of a series of scenarios that can get third- and fourth-year medical students into trouble in the clinic. Several years ago, a young woman came up to me after the class to share a story. During one of her early clinical encounters as a first-year medical student, she had been on a rotation with two other students at a local clinic. The two other students were white. She's Latina. The three of them had just entered a patient's examining room because the patient had given permission for students to accompany the doctor. But when the students entered the room with the white doctor, the patient immediately pointed to the student who was now talking to me and said, I don't want the brown one in here. The doctor immediately nodded to the Latina student, signaling that she had to leave, and the white student stayed. As she told me the story, she started to cry. The experience was still, so understandably, humiliating to her. I've used that scenario in the vulnerable medical student class ever since, and asked students, how would you have handled the situation? While every patient has the right to decide who they want and do not want in the examining room, the physician who was acting as the student's preceptor could have responded to the patient's racism by saying, these three students are here for an education, and they all have an equal right to that education. If you want one student to leave, they'll all leave. Yet not only did the white doctor not do that, no one, not the white doctor or the white students, acknowledged after they left the examining room that the student forced to wait alone in the hallway had been excluded from a learning experience due to her race. My name is Jackie Wolf. On this episode of Lifespan, four current medical students of color, Alyssa Girth, Ashetu Wega, Andrew Williams, and Sammy Nandial describe their own experiences with race and racism in medical school today. The students start by describing their personal backgrounds. Andrew speaks first. Coming from Macon, Georgia, the, the deep south, coming from relative humble means, I sometimes think that the starting point for our success is not always equal across the board. You know, growing up in a one-bathroom home, 10 relatives, not seeing any physicians around, going to elementary school, never having a professional day where you see a doctor, same thing in middle school, same thing in high school, going to high school in the education system that I'm coming from is the worst rated in my county, which is in Georgia, which was 47th lowest academic state out of 50. And then going to college and being told from professors that we don't know how you got here or you have a learning deficiency, you need to go see a learning specialist, um, you need some type of help. I think that translates across the board for a lot of minorities and, and in particular underrepresented minorities in medicine. My name is Ashatu. Yeah, I'm from Mauritania, a country in West Africa that's heavily poor. I've always wanted to go into OB-GYN specifically because the infant mortality rates there are so high. It's due to preventable causes. That was the main driving force for me. I have never seen a black doctor, actually until I got to medical school. So it was really hard to 
be your own fire all the time and motivate yourself all the time and not have that community of people. Um, and even a couple of days ago, there some of my classmates are saying we were we're covering dermatology right now. And some of my classmates are like, oh, yeah, I just called my dad, you know, to have him explain to me because I didn't understand this one thing. And that blew my mind that some people had parents who were doctors that knew some of the things that we were learning and they can just call their mom or dad and have them explain it to them if they didn't understand it. My name is Sammy Nandial. Um, I am from Columbus, Ohio. Growing up in a family that was so justice-driven, like my first memories are walking in gay pride parades in Columbus and going to candlelight vigils for victims of police brutality. And these are things that define my life. This was a path that we could take, be that link not only to health, but also to justice. My name is Alyssa Gerth, and I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, and I went to predominantly white schools. Everyone in my church was white. Every teacher was white. Every leader in my community was white, including my parents. I was adopted, and my sister and I are black. And growing up, I didn't really have any leaders or people in my life that looked like me that were high achieving. All of the high achieving people, including my peers, were white. And that really contributed to a lack of confidence in my abilities growing up through grade school and through high school. And I always wanted to be a doctor, but something told me, you know, the only people who are doctors, they're white. Only smart people become doctors. The smart people around me were white. But it wasn't until I went to Ghana and I went to go coach rugby in the schools and I was linked up with a physician there and she allowed me to shadow her at the local hospital and I saw every person who worked in the hospital was black and everyone was so kind everyone was so brilliant and caring compassionate and these were people who looked just like me who had the skills and the ability that I wanted to have. And after that, it, it planted a seed within me. And I knew from then on, I knew that I could be a doctor and I knew that I could really do anything. Even though it was two years ago, Alyssa vividly remembered the class when I presented the scenario I described at the start of the podcast, the scenario about the Latina student who was excluded because of her race. It was one of the beginning moments where I realized how small I could feel and how silenced I could be when I'm surrounded by white doctors and white medical students. So the first comment that was made was from a white male who said, well, I'm not going to jeopardize my educational experience and leave with the student um, because I deserve to be here and I deserve to learn. And if I left, I would miss out on a learning opportunity. The second person, second white male said, um, well, you know, there's going to be, there's always going to be racism. That's never going to end. So we're going to, ha we have to either learn how to deal with it and suck it up and kind of just move forward in those situations. So that student should leave and they should just move on to the next situation and let it all go. And that was a white student who said that? Yes. The third student 
was a white woman, and her take on it was maybe this person had a traumatic experience with someone who looked like that or someone of a darker skin tone, and that that would cause PTSD if that student was in the room during that encounter, and thus it was justified to ask them to leave. Andrew was particularly troubled by the student who suggested that the racist patient might suffer from PTSD. Where is R? Well, maybe that person could be suffering post-traumatic stress uh, when, when they lash out as a result of how they've walked down the street and been pulled over by police. Or whereas are maybe that student could be struggling because they haven't had the best private schools. They haven't had the, the family upbringing full of physicians. And so I think I probably would have been more understanding if the same grace was given towards all people and particularly that person of color. And the fact that the same grace is not given across the board, it would make me think as well that that did not come from a pure place in terms of the statement that was made. I remember this so vividly because I left the classroom and I bawled my eyes out. At the beginning of medical school, the first thing we are taught is empathy. And it's so drilled into us for the first couple weeks. We even did an exercise surrounding empathy, and I remember thinking, wow, I've got the best cohort of human beings ever. We are going to heal so many humans together. We go through the first two years of didactics, and the vulnerable medical student, ironically, is the last class we have of second year. And so to come that far and to witness the total loss of empathy surrounding an exercise that particularly calls for empathy— That's all it calls for, to have perspective on these situations, and it was lost. And I cried, and I remember it so specifically because I was in a situation that most people of color experience in medical school, and how do I articulate that, and how do I say it in a way that won't make people defensive but will inherently reflect how important this situation is, or do you just sit down and shut up like most people want you to, and then if you start to say something, people might be like, oh, there she goes again talking about race. You have two years of clinical experience, then you have residency. So really what would have, walking out of one patient experience, really would have stolen from you. And then on the flip side of that, thinking about what that stole from the other student of color who felt so isolated and so alienated in that situation. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to convince me that, you know, some people will go out and be saviors in the clinic, but be inhumane in the classroom. So I personally don't know how that jump is going to be met. In terms of being empathic, I know I was reading this article where it talked about the most empathic physicians are those who have once been patients. And I think it's going to be very hard for certain individuals to be empathic if they've never been a patient, if they've never been a minority, if their school always looked like them, the church always looked like them, the sports always looked like them. It's almost like how can you place yourself in somebody else's shoes when you've never even seen that other person's shoes? So when you start losing the diversity in schools and churches and groups, then I I really think it's going to be hard to be empathic. Dr. King echoed, and he said, um, the one who is silent about injustice is just as evil as the person perpetrating injustice. Well, you will have a culture of silence um, until you have a culture of embracing. And, and one th- I think one thing that people don't realize is often it takes just one person to speak up. Because if one person speaks up, others feel empowered to say something. 
um, or even embarrassed that they didn't say something to begin with. But it's almost like who wants to be the first to speak up? Because with being the first to speak up, you, you run the possible risk of being the first to be criticized. The moment where you go upstream or the moment where you start defying thoughts, that is when a lot of backlash happens. I believe that for that first person, what's probably running through their mind is, hey, I agree with some of this, but I don't want to be controversial to the point to where now I'm criticized, even though the other person's criticized. Because if you've ever been the victim and you, you've ever been the minority walking into a school of 166 and, and looking around, just waiting to see somebody like you to connect with, hoping that, hey, you know, somebody at least understands me, somebody can at least relate to me, I would imagine that you would not want to be that, even if it was for five minutes in a classroom. That's why I say it is not up to people of color to explain racism to white people. It's up. It should have been the white preceptor. It should have been the white students. They're the ones who should have stood up. Because I think you're absolutely right. It's not up to the vulnerable person to speak up. White people should be talking to white people about racism. That's what should be happening. So until the help comes from those who make the policy, make the decisions, I think that what we'll end up getting is dialogue with no decisions. And, And when you get dialogue with no decisions, you just go right around and around and around in the same circle. I feel like I'm always the person who's speaking up. (laughs) Um, It's a very uncomfortable space to be in, like Andrew mentioned, but in our small group, in our classrooms, I feel like I'm always the one speaking up. Yeah, I might be put on a chopping block and I might be criticized, but at the same time, what are the consequences of me not speaking up? Now I'm in a place of privilege, as privileged as I can be as a black Muslim woman, but some of that privilege has to be used to educate my classmates, and part of that comes from being a patient and having been a patient and seeing how doctors can sometimes speak to me as a black woman or speak to their other patients and and traumatizing them further. So if we can educate our medical students now on how to speak to people of color and how to be sensitive to those experiences, we can really eliminate a lot of those post-traumatic experiences that people of color have, even just going into a medical facility, which is supposed to be a safe space. We'd been talking in generalities, so I asked Andrew, Ashetu, Alyssa, and Sammy to share a specific story about their experience as students of color in a largely white medical school at a largely white university. I would hear various students ask a professor a question. Gets great response, great feedback. I don't understand the concept. I ask a professor a question or I highlight the understanding that I do have to try to bridge gaps. And I specifically remember the professor said out loud, you're being aggressive. Can you stop? Can you stop? You're being aggressive. What, what about my question was aggressive? And why does it seem like you're baiting me almost to be aggressive? Oftentimes, especially in patient interactions in this area, I feel fetishized a lot, which is something I feel often in interactions with white men, but it is an interesting dynamic to feel that in front of a physician who doesn't say anything or stand up, both as a woman and as a woman of color, hearing that, like, oh, like, you're like the Brazilian, like those women are like hot, like my son is married to a Nepali woman and she's so beautiful like you. Things like that, that completely undermine like what 
my purpose of being there, like me wanting to serve my patients and going through this roller coaster ride of medical school and then being demeaned into a symbol. Being black, Muslim, and female, there's a lot of intersections that happen with my identities, and some of them are very conflicting, and comments are made sometimes about my skin color, sometimes about my religion, sometimes about my gender identity. We have these simulated clinical experiences um, at school every couple weeks or so. We get to go in and kind of play doctor and interview different patients and kind of build our clinical skills that way. And so this was about three or four weeks into my first semester. And so I was wearing my normal hijab and white coat, dressed up like everyone else. And this kind of goes back to being a medical student and not knowing how to respond in these situations because you're so caught off guard. This particular professor had made a comment. You need to find a different way to wrap that. And they use their finger to kind of circle my head. You can't wear it like that in the hospital. It could interfere with you interacting with patients. And never once said the word hijab, never said headscarf. It's like it was like that word was too heavy for them to say because then it would mean that they were attacking something that was so near and dear to me and to my identity. And they're like, yeah, we've had other students in the past and we just told them to wear it in the turban. You know, when you're standing there with, again, the goal of just learning and there's seven other very white students and you're the only one that's being alienated and someone was attacking something that was so important to me and important and at the core of who I was so that was one of those those experiences where I pretty much froze and I didn't know what to do until about two weeks later when I finally decided to take action. And even then, it happened again <laughs> because it wasn't handled properly the first time. So it happened a second time where the same general comments were made again and I had to report it again and really fight for it to be handled properly. And now that space just feels uncomfortable. You know, it's not like... I'm one of 160 white students where I can report something and really be anonymous. I'm the only one who wears a hijab. So it's not really anonymous. And so that really hinders the learning experience because that professor now knows, oh, you were the one that tried to get me in trouble. or You were the one that said something. And so instead of it being an environment of like, I understand what I said was wrong. I understand it was offensive. I'll try to do better next time. It's you're the one who tried to get me in trouble. And therefore, this is going to be an uncomfortable experience for you. And it always is every time I go into that space instead of just being focused on you know what I'm going to go in there and I'm going to talk to this patient and learn how to communicate with patient learn how to interview them how to do a physical exam I get so anxious and I'm just curious at the number of people who have the drive that Ashetu has, the resilience that Ashetu has, the determination, the potential, the wherewithal, the intelligentsia, the academic aptitude to get to the white coat. But because of these situations that are out of their control, when it takes an ordinary student seven hours to study and master material, two of those hours were spent because she had to emotionally prepare to study. Two of those hours were spent because while she was studying, she was distracted because of the situation that just happened. And then we look at the numbers and say, 
hey, let's have diversity and, and inclusion and, and let's recruit. But to be honest, that almost means nothing if we don't have things set in place for when individuals get here and don't have things set in place to keep individuals here. Because you, you're not just an ordinary medical student. Right now, when you, before you go take your next exam, a majority student will start at this vantage point. Your vantage point will automatically be all the way back there. Same information could have been taught. You just have different hurdles to go through. Those are the things that get me passionate because I know that it's a, a lot of Ashetus out there. She speaks five languages. <laughs> That's not normal. I'm, I'm, I, I'm still trying to work on English. You know, she speaks five. And I mean fluently. And so, and so I'm just wondering of how many brilliant minds, resilient minds are out there, but because situations are not set up for their success, will never reach their dream. This transcends medicine. Alyssa recalled an experience she had on a surgery rotation. It was my first day, and I showed up at the colonoscopy wing the intake people directed me to a spot where I could sit to wait for the physician to come for me to meet him. So I was sitting there studiously reading my book. I now go into every situation as a person of color in white spaces and white hospitals, making sure that I'm absolutely perfect, that no one can say that I did anything wrong or make a stereotype out of me because I just want to learn how to be a competent physician. And oftentimes it's compromised if I'm not a perfect being. So I was studiously reading, was ready to get into action. I had prepared heavily for this rotation, and I was ready to do my best and learn. The people in this area probably don't see many students of color. For me to be an aspiring doctor also puts me at an interesting dynamic with white nurses who might see me and know that I'm going to become a doctor, and their validity feels a little threatened. I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, they started talking about slavery. Their ancestors fought for the South and how they are proud of them because they were fighting for something honorable at the time. Then that led into, oh yeah, and those Confederate statues, there's all this fuss about taking them down. And then it got into the kneeling at the national anthem. So it just kept going, but it started with slavery for no reason. And then it just kept going. Of course, I'm always paralyzed in these situations, thinking about all the things I could, could say, but I don't say anything. And... Then the physician comes, and I go to meet him, but he ignores me, and he's talking with a nurse. But as a medical student, I, quote, quote, know my place, so I just wait at a like comfortable distance. Finally, his eyes glance towards me, so I say, hi, my name's Alyssa. I'm a third-year medical student, and I'm re-rotating with you. I emailed you last week, and introduction, and then he says hello, and, and we just go straight to see the patient getting the colonoscopy. We go and do the colonoscopy. So during the procedure, the nurses who started the whole conversation happens to be the anesthesiology tech. So the physician is teaching me how to do the colonoscopy, and we're having great dialogue. And then at one point where I'm not involved, I ask the nurse a question about the anesthesiology and trying to understand the mechanism in which how the patient is kind of asleep and how they pop out of it so fastly after the procedure. And she ignores me. And a moment goes by that I'm, we're awkwardly, like, in the same vicinity. And so she says, I think that the doctor needs you to help him with so-and-so. And the doctor didn't ask me to. It was clear that the doctor was trying to do his own thing at that point, so I was trying to 
take advantage of the learning situation. So at that point, I don't know if she's just a mean person or if she doesn't like me because I'm black. And so that's the tale that I try to ask myself all the time, giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. But with so many of these blatant experiences, it's always hard to tell like why people are acting the way that they did. In the OR, a week later, similar inflammatory statements are made while my hands are inside someone's abdomen. And I look over to anesthesia, and it's the same nurse. And she has inflamed the entire nursing crew, including the physician in the room, with very inflammatory statements that have to do with race and them debating about what's racist and what's not. My hands are already shaking because I'm trying not to drop instruments in someone's abdomen. Again, holding back tears. My entire learning space is compromised because of what people around me are talking about as if they want me to listen to their opinions and need me and know that I am just a student, so I'm silenced, all while trying to take care of someone's life. After the rotation, Alyssa complained about the way she'd been treated. I had a meeting with the dean of my clinical site, and he just said, oh, the physician is just a, a jerk. The most of it was, didn't have to do with the physician. Um, he also played the card of, oh, I have a black friend, he's my best friend, and yada yada, and took over the conversation. So it's like you take the proper steps, professional steps, to defend yourself and make sure that this doesn't happen to another student. But even those steps sometimes are frivolous. It's disheartening. Racial inequality in medical education, and therefore in medicine, is not a problem unique to any one medical school in the United States. Professor Berkeley Franz, a medical sociologist in the Department of Social Medicine at Ohio University, describes a March 2019 article in the Journal of Health Social Behavior, the flagship journal for medical sociology, written by sociologist Lauren Olson. And the title is The Conscripted Curriculum and the Reproduction of Racial Inequalities in Contemporary U.S. Medical Education. And so what Lauren talks about in this article is the way in which medical schools often use medical students to teach racism in the classroom. That is, they don't teach it in formal didactic activities, but they rely on medical students to share their experiences, especially in small group settings, at the expense of having faculty actually learn the science of health disparities and racism in medicine and provide that content in an objective manner for all students. They rely on students to do the instruction. And we're talking about minority students. Students of color. What this author found was the main way that medical students learn about racism in the clinic is through the experiences of other students, not through faculty sharing about the reality of racism and, of course, its impact on health disparities. Medical schools are putting the onus on their minority medical students to teach white medical students about racism. Exactly. And this author points out at the beginning of the article that really nobody's even writing about this or talking about it. Alyssa noted that medical students of color spend half their time being medical students and the other half of their time being activists for social and racial justice. Unlike white medical students, they don't have the luxury of just being students. Ashetu and Andrew agreed. And I think that on top of the prejudice and microaggressions, your time is split already. If you do care about those issues, if you do want to fight those issues, you 
kind of have to parcel out your time. And so that, on top of everything, is, is heavy. How can we expect minorities to show up in the classroom and in the clinics and across the hallways and not need a personal day when they're facing a completely different battle? This was an extra burden that white students didn't carry. The fact that they had to be the ones to be explaining race and racism, to teach about race and racism, this was something that was such an extra responsibility and such a burden that it made studying harder. It made interacting in class more difficult. This was something that they had to live with, and it made being a medical student even harder than it is for medical students in general. Absolutely. And we know from studying health disparities for over 20 years now that this is incredibly problematic for people's health in terms of what it means to experience chronic stress. But if you experience this on a daily basis, that cumulative effect of stress is really toxic for people's health. And there's a whole kind of field developing to, to kind of understand what that physiological reaction means and what it means for premature aging putting this extra burden on our very own students as they're learning about how to take care of other people. So it's incredibly problematic. It's like a double job in medical school, right, on top of what everybody else already has to do in medical school, which isn't easy. I've seen the first years combat bias in the classroom, racism in the classroom, with such vigor, courage, strategic intelligence, and have multiple faculty members tell them that they're being oversensitive and that they need to learn how to be resilient because they'll face this the rest of their life. These students are some of the most resilient students from all of their experiences to even get here. It's an attack to claim when you're faced with something, you just kind of, you need to get over it and you need to learn how to deal with it. You don't know what these students are, of color are dealing with on a daily basis, let alone just getting through medical school, which is a beast alone. As minorities in medical school, this extra burden we have of being an ally to our future patients that we will never even see, the patients of our our peers and our colleagues. Practicing physicians still have those beliefs like black people have thicker skin, thicker blood. These beliefs kill. Like Black people are less likely to get life-saving treatments. They're not believed. Our school has trouble getting people to even come to events where we can even start to talk about race. And it's being that person that is the one to speak up all the time. I often feel othered and that race is made into a joke. We have really concrete data about what implicit bias does in healthcare settings in particular. We know that African-American patients, for example, are much less likely to get pain medication. Even African-American children after surgery, less likely to be put on the transplant list, more likely to be assumed non-compliant. We have a whole list of outcomes that have been reproduced over and over again. So we know that implicit bias has an impact on healthcare. And most of the students that we have coming through our medical school are really well-meaning and they do want to help people. And if you tell them that they're going to inadvertently harm somebody because they have this kind of lingering racial ideology, racial stereotype, Types, they will usually listen to that because they don't want to be on doing that. Berkeley Franz and I discussed the observations made by Andrew, Alyssa, Chateau, and Sammy and why it's a problem that so many white Americans today define racism so narrowly. Racism 
is, you know, something we're all familiar with, at least in general. We understand racial ideology and the idea that racism exists. But what we don't understand is that racism looks different than the way that we learned that it's supposed to look. And so we think about racism as kind of genetic inferiority of the racism of the 1950s or before. But racism looks very different today than that. What white people, that's what they're looking for. When they see this didactic activity where you have this role playing, they're looking for kind of overt displays of racism. They don't understand what's going on in, in this role playing. Um, they don't understand that racism has kind of transitioned to be much more covert, that it's harder to pick up, but it's something that that students of color experience and have to bring to the attention of white people because they don't understand, they don't learn in their, you know, formal activities that racism is very different than it used to be, but equally problematic and with, with real consequences for health. When I was young, no one ever talked about race or racism. So I was experiencing a lot of instances of personally mediated racism, but didn't have the language for it. And since no one around me had the language for it either, it was internalized by me as a personal deficiency that people would treat me that way. Starting in the 1980s, there was this move towards colorblindness and this kind of inability to talk about racism anymore. People, you know, believed that racism had went away as a result of the civil rights movement. And the fact, you know, it didn't go away, it just became more institutional and more systemic. And white people kind of let it go at that point and didn't want to talk about race. When Obama was elected, you started to see traditional racism reemerge because you had this black president and white People thought at that point that racism must be dead because Obama is president. We have this man who identifies as black as president. And then when Trump gets elected, you have this resurgence of more kind of overt displays of racism. So you've seen this transition over time that racism never goes away in the United States in terms of racial domination. But it's really a challenge when white people come to believe that racism doesn't exist anymore because they're really um, at a disadvantage for seeing it. And then you you, you know, rely on people of color to share their experiences, and oftentimes they're minimized. Your reference to the use of the phrase colorblindness. Some of our best comedians in the U.S. have, have picked up on that, and, and the running joke has been, I don't see color. Because of course we see color. Mm -hmm. It's a great in-your-face way, comedic in-your-face way of saying, come on. Exactly. When you grow up in a country with such hierarchical ordering of races based on skin tone, you can't unsee that. You, you really do internalize that over time. I recall times in my medical education where I could be in a group study and everybody gives their input on a particular topic, particular subject. I give my input and a pen would be slammed down on the table. That can't be right. Nobody knows my grades. Nobody knows how well I've done. Nobody knows the scholarships I'm on. Nobody knows any of that. But I can't be right. Not, hey, I don't think what you're saying is right. It's that can't be right. Why can't it be right? Is it because I'm the same guy who came from a lower economic background? Is it because I'm the same guy of color? What is it that can't be right about it when indeed it is right? This is a daily thing. This is every, this isn't like, oh, once a month, you'll go through one experience that's really going to take 10 hours from your week. This is an everyday thing. Every single day someone makes a comment Someone looks at you weird. Someone says, that can't be right. <laughs> How hard that I have to fight for someone to just believe me that that's the right answer. It's little things like that. It's the, oh, my gosh, you're so smart after every time you answer a question. And it's like, what is the shock? You know, what is the surprise, you know, that I'm so smart? Aren't we all smart? We made it to med school after all. That is <laughs> such a common experience. One of the other white students will ask a question that I'm like, that seems very simple, and everyone looks and just says, wow, that's a really great question. <laughs> Let's look it up. 
and, and everyone will come to a conclusion together. But it's like when you ask her, you say the answer, it can't possibly be right. It's dismissed. My friend was in an anatomy lab, and she has a, a master's in anatomy. And same thing happened. She tells them an answer. She explains something. They discount her. They go ask the professor for a second opinion. And then later, someone comes to her defense and says, you know, she has a master's in anatomy. And everyone's like, what? Are you serious? <laughs> when I go on rotations, when I perform on a marginal to average level, the physicians are like, wow, how'd you know that? <laughs> You must be, you know, you studied, did you study before you came here? They're just so overly impressed that I produced one literal answer that it's like they've never seen a black person be great, not even exceptional, <laughs> just normal. Yeah. And it's, and it's very off-putting. Because oftentimes it's seen as a compliment, you know, oh, I'm complimenting you. I'm pointing out that you're smart, but you're not pointing out anyone else's intelligence. Berkeley described a book by sociologist Eduardo Silva titled Racism Without Racists. And they talks about colorblind society and the fact that we now are living in a society where nobody's racist, but yet we have systemic racism happening and nobody can pinpoint it except for people who experience it. And so it's very hard to convince white people that it exists because nobody wants to be racist or sees themselves as being racist. Nonetheless, they obviously propagate racism in their actions. Colorblind racism is an attempt for white people to maintain privilege by assuming that the racism doesn't exist anymore, by saying that everything is fair and equal now. So there's no reason to talk about bias because everything is totally meritocratic and now you know we need to stop talking about race. But the problem is, is that that's obviously not true and we do have tremendous amounts of bias. Um, and so this whole kind of field of implicit bias has developed in terms of understanding not just our explicit or kind of conscious biases that we have, but all the things that we've internalized just by growing up in a society where there were clear um, kind of ordering of, of races and values between uh, people of different skin tones. The problem with implicit bias that really upsets a lot of people, including medical students and uh, medical school faculty, is that it really has a minimal relationship to conscious bias or to explicit bias. So you may not know you have it, which is really scary to a lot of people that you may unintentionally value certain people over others or hold certain stereotypes that certain people are going to be, um, you know, smarter or better behaved or whatever. And of course, the students who've already talked in this podcast shared experiences of that, of, of faculty responding to them, assuming that they were acting aggressively or they were really embodying stereotypes related to people of color. Or that their answer couldn't possibly be right because they couldn't have that knowledge base. Right. Questioning them as opposed to not questioning white students when they provided an exactly. answer. Exactly. And I'm guessing if you ask those same faculty, they would be really upset to learn that they, maybe they had treated somebody differently because they don't see themselves that way. And they don't accept that as a white person, they may have internalized some of these beliefs and stereotypes types about people of color. But from a person who experiences that, how can you ignore it? I mean, it's impossible to ignore, but from a white person's perspective who doesn't experience that, they have a hard time believing it. Ashatu and I were kind of talking about like being the person that speaks up and in a lot of these situations it's when we're in lecture whether it be a professor at our school or whether it be a guest presenter and a lot of times just case studies are brought up or race-based medicine is brought up and me and my friends we all just sit together like people of color like to sit together when these things come up 
you can just feel everyone tense up. And then you look around, all of our white peers don't notice these things at all. And then when things cross the line and we report it and they're not addressed, it reinforces these stereotypes. We realize that like our peers are not getting any more exposure than that to minorities, how they are treated in the health field. That's just another layer of things that students of color have to deal with when it comes to our education. If you're on Twitter, they talk about gaslighting where people of color, their experiences are made to be smaller than they really are. And so in that situation where you experience something that clearly bothers you and is offensive or is racist and you talk about it and then everyone's response is, you're being too sensitive. You're being too sensitive. They couldn't have meant that. The pile of excuses come on. The idea of, of speaking out too comes with people labeling you as someone who's very sensitive and can't take a joke and can't take anything lightly and is serious all the time. And that too can be really exhausting. Gaslighting is actually an old term that makes people even question what their reality was. Exactly. It puts you in a space where you think you might be going crazy. Yes, absolutely. This affects white people, too. And they are missing out on opportunities to learn and grow and be the competent physicians that they wish to be. As we move into this quality over quantity-based reimbursement in medicine— it should be a huge priority for them to care about the quality of medicine that they are going to give to people because that's how they're going to get paid. Implicit bias plays a key role in these health disparities. And even in their interaction with a person who's different from them, the nonverbal cues a patient can pick up on, and that creates mistrust. And then they wonder why their patient is, quote, unquote, noncompliant, but it's not about compliance. It's about disconnect and cross-cultural communication. Minorities in this country get lower quality of care even when income, insurance access, other means to access to care, clinical need is all controlled for. It comes down to race, and this is something that we all need to be concerned about. There's this quote that I really like, and it's, we all can be great because we all can serve. And there's another one that goes, he who is greatest among you shall be chief servant. Not chief executive officer, but chief servant. So if we truly desire to be great, no matter what our skin looks like, no matter what our backgrounds entail, that greatness is not inseparable from, from service. And so I think as we continue to go through medical education, we begin to be in positions where we can advocate and impact policy is that at the forefront of our minds is, you know, regardless of how I'm treating, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? Muslim, Jew, Hindu, atheist, gay, straight, whatever, black, white, you name it, and hope that because we were consistently great, that we'll just start seeing residual benefits based on the seeds that we've sown. You know, one person plants, another person waters. Hopefully we'll all be able to reap the harvest. But I think what's just important is that if you're a planter, keep planting. If you're a waterer, just keep watering. 
And if you're the one who's gonna see the benefits, see that and take it on to the next level. Given the experiences of medical students of color in medical school classrooms and in clinics where they've been sent to learn, and given the reality of health disparities in the United States, the effect of race and racism on health should be topics that are central to a medical school education. And it's not up to black people to explain racism and its effects to white people. White people should be educating white people about racism whenever the opportunity presents itself. Thank you for listening to Lifespan. Adam Rich is our sound engineer and co-executive producer. Harley Wince is our audio editor. I'm your host and co-executive producer, Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University. Join us for our next episode of Lifespan on first-time pregnancies.